This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 747 with Dr. Amy Porto. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 747. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Dr. Amy Porto is an anti-diet registered dietitian, nutrition professor, and certified intuitive eating counselor. As an expert in her field with over 20 years of experience, Dr. Porto speaks the truth about nutrition. Her purpose is to disrupt mainstream diet culture with real science, a dash of humor, and a little bit of common sense. And while she holds a BS in biochemistry and a PhD in nutrition science, she believes you shouldn't need a PhD to decode food labels at the grocery store. Breaking down complex information about food and nutrition into digestible bite-sized pieces of information is her passion. Plus, she loves a good pun. (laughs) Amy's ultimate goal is to help you trust your body and reclaim your relationship with food. So I have to say, I get pitched on a regular basis, people who want to come on the show and talk about nutrition and nutrition plans and supplements and all sorts of things. And I always, I barely read the email. I'm like one sentence in and I'm like, yeah, no. But Dr. Amy Porto, different story. So I actually found her on Instagram through following someone else's profile for a while. And this person kept referencing Amy's work. And then I started to follow Amy and watch some of her videos. And I was like, oh, she is my people. And if I'm going to talk about nutrition on my show, it is going to be with someone who wants to call out all the BS in diet culture. As we've done on this show before, we've done it with Sarah Stevens multiple times. We did it with Aubrey Gordon from Maintenance Phase. 
So I was like, let's bring Amy Porto in. So we had such a fantastic conversation. I love digging deep. And what was so funny when we first got on to record, I was like, okay, so Amy, what do you think? Are we going to talk about like our mutual adoration for maintenance phase? Or are we going to ignore it and just dig into your work? And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like we're for sure digging into maintenance phase. So whether or not you know what maintenance phase is, don't worry, we're going to get into it. But it was so fun to be able to talk about just this commonality of this thing that we're really, really obsessed with and how it's changing the game and the conversation around nutrition. This is why I wanted Amy to come on the show, because having been in the fitness industry for over 15 years, I saw how destructive culture around food and nutrition is to women. And I am so determined and committed to helping women reframe this through the way that I have conversations about food on the podcast, even though this isn't like the thing I talk about all the time. Also how I talk about nutrition in my own life with friends, with family. It's so significant because diet culture is a part of everything that women do in their lives in some way. It is so deeply ingrained and a system of oppression that most of us don't know exists that underlies so much of what we do and gets in the way of so much of our success. And that sounds like a really big hyperbolic statement, and it's not. <laughs> and I this is why I left the fitness and nutrition industry and why I will only have certain conversations with very specific people. And Dr. Amy Porto is one of them. So with all that, with my big soapbox statement there, listen in to hear Amy share the cultural impact of maintenance phase. And we dig into this. We talk about why accessible, approachable, anti-diet and anti-fat bias information and content is so critical right now. Then we dig into the process of unlearning when you're learning about nutrition. And what's so fascinating about this is that there's so much work for all of us to do with this, that whenever you start to read nutrition information and articles and data and social media stuff, once you start to do some unlearning around this, you see everything through a whole new lens. And so you take in new information in a very different way. And so Amy's going to help us with that today. On top of that, she shares the importance of language around food in terms of how we talk about food as it relates to ourselves, and even more importantly, how we talk about food as it relates to others. We talk about the morality of optimal health. So there is this like classism and elitism about health culture that is so present. And it's kind of like the new version of diet culture. If we look at diet culture being something that was like so prevalent in like the 80s and 90s, the 2000s, 210s, 220s, it's all about health culture. And there's a lot of harmful things being done in this optimizing of health culture in terms of who actually has access to do the stuff to quote unquote, get healthy. And then Amy digs into the elitism of diet culture, cleanses, detoxes, and fasting. And we talk about nourishing yourself from a place of self-care and self-love versus self-control. So this is a big, juicy conversation. It's filled with so many good nuggets. Listen to it, listen more than once, share it around. This is a really, really important conversation. And I could not be more excited to welcome Dr. Amy Porto to the Shameless Mom Academy. Amy, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. This is one of those conversations that was like lots of Instagram DMs in the making. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've had a conversation and now we're actually going to have like an audible conversation. <laughs> yes. But I will say like, it really creates a lot of excitement and anticipation when there's like this person that you become friends with on Instagram and then you just talk about doing an interview forever. And then you know, now I'm like, we have like 30 different things we could talk about today. How will we I know. Absolutely. How do you narrow it down for sure? Exactly. So let's start with how 
I found you through Nicole Walters, who had tagged you a number of times in things, and she's a past guest of the show. And so she tagged you a few times and I was like, oh, I like this Amy. Like she's got some, we're on the same page with all this like diet and nutrition mm-hmm. BS and et cetera. And then finally, at one point I reached out to just comment on something, I think. And I was quickly like, oh, you're my people. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I did a little stalking on you as well when you asked me to be on the show. And I was like, okay, you are also my people. So yeah. <laughs> and then we discovered our mutual love and adoration for maintenance phase. And it really solidified the relationship. Yeah, then that's a done deal, right? That, <laughs> totally. then, then absolutely, we have now known each other forever. <laughs> totally, totally. And I'll share with our audience that I told you that my recent interview with Aubrey Gordon was like more than I could have ever hoped for. And Aubrey doesn't know, but like, I think we're super good friends. And I think she has a gift for like making people feel really comfortable and at ease. So she made me feel that way. So in my mind, I'm like, obviously she just loved me so much. (laughs) So yeah, she was fantastic. And maintenance phase is like kind of a game changer. Yeah, it really, I know we have talked about this kind of in our Instagram conversations, but what a powerful podcast that has Mm -hmm. just, I think, changed the landscape in so many ways with conversations that need to be had with just anti-fat bias and all of the things that we have in this weight-focused culture. And Mm -hmm. what a gift both Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs are in how well-researched the show is. Yes, it's incredible. how hilarious they are. <laughs> so so that's that that's yeah. like the magical combination. Cause if you were just like, Hey, like you should listen to this podcast. It's a lot of research on diet culture. People would be like, oh, I don't know. But then you get to listen to two really good friends talk about it and laugh their way through it. And you're like, Holy cow. Like now I can see how this is like completely damaged our entire culture. And also I can laugh about it. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, as someone in the sciences, I think they've done a really great job communicating science mm-hmm. in a way for the average listener who yeah. that isn't their area to just be able to take that in and be like, yeah, I've heard of that. Or yeah. yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm just, I'm thrilled at the popularity that show has gotten. It's been great. I think this is a good place to start our conversation as mm-hmm. well, that what do you think is the cultural impact of a podcast that talks about anti-fat bias and all this research around it? As well as what I've really noticed and been touched by is also Aubrey does such a great job of bringing in disability discrimination, which is something that I like embarrassingly and like a little ashamedly now, like didn't have on my radar to the extent I feel like I should have. And I've learned so much about that as well on the show. And so what's the cultural impact of a show having such a huge platform that like, as they have now in terms of the work that you do and how it I'm imagining really uplifts the work that you do. Mm. You know, it's interesting in the way you asked that question, you almost answered it for me in a different way. (laughs) So for what the show has done for you, you know, in thinking about disability in a different way, and just having that awareness has really been great working in as a nutrition space and as a dietitian to know that this type of messaging is coming out there and people are thinking about things in a different way, or it's just kind of counter the message that we have been receiving for decades about food and about bodies and about recommendations and where they're coming from. And here's a different way potentially to look at that, that maybe you haven't explored before and being presented in a way with a lot of research and just seeing a historical background in the information that they share. I think it's really been helpful to have people 
see things a little bit differently, or at least be open to thinking about them differently, even if they're not ready to change their mind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I find that it's interesting how it's like heavy content. And I imagine in the world of academia, you Mm -hmm. can relate to this, that it's like, it's heavy content, but they bring this levity to it. That is very, it makes the content really approachable where, and consumable and not boring and not overwhelmingly daunting, even though the underlying message can be rather horrifying at times. Yeah. And it, you have to, I think for me, because you're asking about like from a professional standpoint, yeah. hearing those things, I sit with them professionally and think, oof, how do I do this in my job as a professor, you know, yeah. in a way to reframe some of the messaging that students have been receiving in their training and what that's going to mean for them as future dietitians. And then also in my business and the clients that I work with, where you're kind of dismantling or deconstructing all of that information, but then it's also taking it in for yourself. And thinking, okay, I'm also a product of this culture, even though I'm working with clients and I'm teaching students, but I'm also someone who's in it mm-hmm. and thinking about how that's impacted me as well, particularly, you know, someone growing up in the seventies and the eighties and being in college in the nineties and like so much of the things that are brought forward, you're like, yeah, I remember that. I participated in that. I oh, hate yeah. that. I did that. You know, um, you're not immune from the dieting culture that we're in just because you're working in that space, you know, as a professor or as a dietitian. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious as we record this, the very beginning of 2023 and based on kind of everything we just touched on, what are you excited about this year? Is there anything and whether it's personal or professional, but I'm curious where what's lighting you up as you enter this new year. So many things <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not a new year's resolution type of gal. I have nothing against that. If that's something that people, you know, like to have, and I've never been a word of the year person, Mm. but this year I decided I am a word of the year person. (laughs) So something, because it kind of connected with me, it's never resonated with me before, like something happened, but I've been wearing this sweatshirt a lot for whatever reason. Cause you know, like you find that thing that you put on after work and it's the uniform and it says, choose joy. And I Mm. find myself gravitating to that more and more. And so one of the things I've decided for this upcoming year is joy is going to be my word of the year. And from Mm -hmm. a real intentional um, type of place. And so what I'm excited about in this coming year, just from a personal standpoint, is really kind of a shift in priorities in a way that allows me to care for myself better. You know, as you work with others, And I see myself, you know, talking with clients and working with them through things. And I see some of the things in myself, like, yeah, I need to be prioritizing some of those things, you know, as well. I could be doing a better job of that. So really thinking about, you know, rest more intentionally and joy more intentionally and relationships more intentionally, because I can, as an academic, get really bogged down in research and work and all of those types of things, which are also fulfilling, but at the expense of some other things. So that's, you know, on a personal standpoint, but I'm also really excited from a business standpoint of things that I've really been kind of on the back end planning for some time. And you know how that is when it's finally going to birth and come to fruition. Y'all are going to be so excited (laughs) for all these things that you don't even know about yet. So I see a lot of that um, coming out throughout the year. So I'm excited. um, I love it. To share some of those. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is 
around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. Tell us a little bit about what inspired your move beyond academia. I know you're still in academia, mm-hmm. but beyond academia and to start your own business and all the things, you know, as you're thinking or as you're noting that these things are coming in 2023, what inspired you to do this work that's beyond the classroom? Yeah, it's interesting. It wasn't something I set out to do, but I found the need and it, mm-hmm. and it came about. So, you know, I often think, how long have I been a professor? And I relate it to, and I probably should have looked before we hit record, however many seasons there are of Grey's Anatomy. Oh. That's how many years. <laughs> oh my God. I love that that's the marker. They it is the marker. The, like whatever, 2001 no. or whatever. It was 2004, but I can't do math. So I just know when I was unpacking into the first place I lived to start this job, I was watching Grey's Anatomy. So that, this is how I know this. So we're in this 18, 19 year mark. 
And one of the classes I taught early on was, you know, here's an intro to, you know, what does it mean to be a dietitian and what got you here and kind of that first year student, you know, what did you want to be when you grow up kind of thing. And I noticed in those early years in that, you know, 2004 timeframe when I got started, there was a lot of, you know, I want to help people, right? It's, it's a helping profession, but the helping people was surrounding, like, I want to help people lose weight. Um, and this was the era of the biggest loser, right? Where we were mm, yeah. looking at weight loss as entertainment type of thing. So there was that influence on students or there were a lot of students interested in sports nutrition because they were athletes or there was a medical issue with someone in their family. And so they had seen the impact of the dietitian, and that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. And then that changed over time. The stories of why students wanted to be in the profession moved outside of helping others and really became more internal about thinking about their own issues around, I have an eating disorder history, so I wanna help people with eating disorders. Or a lot of students would write things that they were inspired, you know, since I'm on the Shameless Mom here podcast, you know, inspired by their mother, and no mm, yep. shame to the mothers, you know, who they would call, you know, air quotes here as health freaks, mm -hmm. or, you know, my mom always had us do a lot of things to keep us healthy. And then all the things that they would share were really disordered. And yeah. I think, oof, okay, I'm not going to call that out in your first semester and go against the things that mom was doing her best, you know, in the healthy type of thing. And those became more extreme. And so it got me thinking, you know, wow, where are students learning this information? A lot of this is being passed down. And who are the folks who are passing that down? Well, those are folks who are my age. I got to be to an age where my students could have, you know, been my children yeah. and thinking, wow, how do you get upstream from that? Because yeah. you're only learning, you know, so it's not only impacting the students in the classroom who are going to be dietitians, but where are they getting that messaging from? And how can I begin to have an influence there? So I started going live on Facebook when Facebook live became a thing like 2015, 2016. Yeah. I talk in front of people for a living. So I was not one of those folks who was afraid to go live, <laughs> you know, in my top knot pajamas. And I started just kind of ranting about the things that were like really frustrating to me, which led to folks reaching out to me and saying, you know, do you work with people outside of what you do at the university? Do you do this? Do you have any kind of course where people who aren't in your classroom can learn all of this? And I thought, huh, no, I don't, but I should do that. <laughs> you know, people were coming and asking for that and they wanted that knowledge or they wanted to know what was correct and what wasn't correct. And so quite honestly, in, you know, the early years of putting the business together, I was very, I treaded lightly. I didn't think folks were ready for the information that I wanted to share about diet culture, about the harms, about all that. I thought they just want to know the basic nutrition information. And I had a very science hat on until I really found my voice. And realize, no, this is really the information. You have this knowledge to disrupt the misinformation. That's what folks need to know. So it was really at an effort to get upstream of yeah, yeah. You know, who the students were going to be in my classroom and has just really shifted into an opportunity to help and serve people who grew up just like me who grew up going to the Weight Watcher meetings with their mother and like who grew raise up, his hand over here. Right. Yeah. You know, well, and, and who was also just doing the best that they could and yeah. thought that this was, you know, what health was going to look like. And this is what you should be doing and, and all of that. So how can I help, you know, to unpack that for other folks and really help them heal their own relationships with food and their body. Yeah. And that was kind of how things came to be. So fascinating. 
it's funny when I was talking with Aubrey Gordon, we talked about going to Weight Watchers with our moms at age. Like, I think she was, I was 12 and she was 13 or something. Yep. Like, and that's just like a really common, if you were born in a certain, if you were like, you know, between 1975 and 1985, <laughs> like, yep. you were going yep. to Weight Watchers with your mom yep. And, yep. <laughs> and the learning that happened in that space for me as detrimental as a lot of it was, it was really like, I felt like I that was the beginning of me feeling like falsely. So, but me feeling like I had this education in nutrition and health and all these different things. So I'm imagining when kids come, when I say kids, young adults, most likely come to you, they're coming in with this, like their backpack full of tool tools. And I'm saying in air quotes that they feel like they've prepared themselves with, and this knowledge that they prepared themselves with, and your job is probably equal parts helping them unlearn as it is helping them learn. Like I'm imagining you can't just start throwing truth at them if you don't unpack all the BS and the untruth. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you're exactly right. One of the things that has been interesting in the last couple of years, which has just kind of blown my mind in a lot of ways is how many students are now coming with the language of diet culture and saying those things and having knowledge coming in. And they have been very helpful in a classroom setting where it's not, you know, old 48 year old me who's out of touch with whatever talking to them, but to have students reinforce that Mm -hmm. in a classroom setting and hearing from their peers, I think has also been helpful to think about things differently. And I think the last couple of years too have also opened a lot of us up across all decades of life to start to recognize the way that we think about other people and our own biases that we Mm -hmm. don't want to recognize that we have those and we can start to see them in different areas. And this is an area as well. And I think younger generations are more open to that, to realizing Mm -hmm. like, oh, I may have this wrong. And I'm willing to unpack that and and be uncomfortable with that. And that's been great to see. So, which is so prominent. I mean, I can't remember who I was interviewing recently, but they were talking about working with younger, with people in their early twenties and it has something to do with politics, but it was like the hope of the younger generation that like, they are really like impressionable in such a positive way. Like they are really like, Oh, like, let's dig into that. Like, why do you think that? And I wonder what we could do with that. And like all these things where you're like, yeah, I've never heard like a 70 year old white man ask that question (laughs) or or be willing to take in a different point of view, even if you were like really steadfast in how you thought. Yeah. You're yeah. So interesting. And so, and definitely I think creates a lot of hope. I'd love to talk about words and why words matter when it comes to diet culture and how we talk about food and our relationship with our food and bodies. And this is something that has been so interesting for me to unpack. I don't remember if I shared, have I told you my, like that I was in the fitness industry for many, many years. I feel like I know that. Okay. So like two sentence bio, I was, became a personal trainer in 2003 and I had my own fitness business until 2018. Yeah. Mm. 2018. And then I sold it at that time, but I sold it because I was like, oh my God, I can't, like, I don't know how to get out of being in this industry. I don't know how to be in this industry in a way that's positive. I kept trying to like shift and pivot messaging and marketing and, but people kept coming and wanting the same thing. Like no matter how I changed, how I showed up to do the work and support my clients, they just wanted to shrink their bodies. And so I'd be like, let's get strong. And they're like, so how do I lose 10 pounds in 10 days? (laughs) 
And I couldn't figure out how to like make the mindset shifts happen that could decondition that kind of thinking. Mm. And to the point that I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be affiliated with this. This is just like, felt so at odds with my core values. And at that point I had already started the show, the Shameless Mom Academy. And the show was not ever about health, fitness, wellness, but there was always this angle around, which I still have. That's like, I want to talk about the ways that women's bodies are oppressed because of the, the different messaging. And a lot of that is wrapped up in diet culture and health. And so I would love to dig into why words matter around diet culture. And then why this is so significant when we talk about food and bodies and there's so much to say there. So I'm going to let you just take it and we'll see where we go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So definitely the words matter part is a really, is a core value for me when we're talking about food and we're talking about bodies. And I also will say, I get it wrong too. Mm. I got to lead with that. It's a really important thing to me. And I also get it wrong (laughs) at times. There are times when I say things and I hear them back and I think, Ooh, okay, Miss Words Matter, <laughs> you know, that didn't land well. So I want to put that out there that this is something that I work on, you know, for myself. But I think the way that we talk about food, particularly just in my area, is often what we end up thinking about ourselves in certain ways. And then beyond that, what has become more apparent and more important, I guess, for lack of a better word, is how we think about others. So there's one part of that where it becomes internalized, where, you know, we have you know, just from the basics, we have good food and bad food, right? And we have this, you know, I was good today and I had the salad and I'm bad today because I ate fill in the blank, whatever bad food is, right? Today. Yeah. So we do that to ourselves and that's problematic, right? That's problematic from a body image standpoint. It's problematic in terms of how we compensate for those decisions. So we suddenly feel better about ourselves by making certain choices, or we feel worse about ourselves for making other choices, those kind of things. I mean, and that is certainly an issue, but where I take more of an issue with that is the language then that gets used around food that then we look at groups of people or particular people in certain ways. So when we talk about, you know, this is garbage food or trash Mm. food, or this is junk food or, you know, air quotes, Mm. not real food. You know, those kind of things. What does that actually mean? You know, because all food is bringing something in the moment, you know, whether that is nourishment in some ways, it's bringing calories, it's bringing joy, it's actually just filling you in some way, you know, it's meeting a time constraint, it's doing all kinds of things. But when we have those labels like that, it really is kind of judgmental and shaming for Mm -hmm. folks who maybe don't have access to or can't afford particular types of foods that, you know, people who are using that language can do. And so when I've posted and talked about that before, you get a lot of vitriol for saying that, like, how dare a dietitian not realize that there are just some foods that are bad foods. And I'm not shaming anybody when I say that. But when you talk about, you know, when you have an idea of what like junk food is, And then you have an association of like, who are people who eat junk food? Yeah. That stereotype, it it begins this kind of spiral that's really problematic. And Mm -hmm. so that language is not, you know, helpful. And it becomes this elitism. You know, people will talk about morality of food, but I see it more as a hierarchy and a food elitism of like, I'm better than because I eat superfoods or I eat clean food 
because apparently there's dirty food. <laughs> you know, like even that language is just, yeah. or I'm having a cheat day because if I'm cheating, I must have been, you know, wearing a health halo for the other yeah. six days of the week. <laughs> and now suddenly I'm, I'm cheating. And so, you know, it, it translates into so many things. You know, I, I see this language too, even surrounding like, I'm so addicted to carbs. I'm so mm-hmm. addicted to sugar. And like, ooh, like, number one, that is scientifically inaccurate. <laughs> like you are not, it feels that way. And there's reasons it feels that way, but it's really grossly insensitive. Also yeah. for people who struggle with substance use disorders. Yeah. yeah. To be like, oh, I'm addicted, you know, to this, right. like, mm. <laughs> like that kind of thing. So it just is a pause. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times it's just to say, you know, what is that judgment on myself? What does it mean to talk about food in that way? Am I trying to justify my choices? Am I trying to distance myself from what other people are doing so I can, you know, raise myself up in some way? It's a tough one. Yeah. I'm so glad that you use the word elitism. I think that there is so much elitism in talking about food and so much elitism in diet culture. I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday about cleanses and detoxes and how they're like just super classist and elitist. And the person I was talking to was like, oh, tell me more. And this was like, I was talking to another parent and we were not actually talking about diet culture. We were talking about, and now I'm not going to remember the name of the show. Chris Hemsworth did this like docu-series that my husband's been watching and he did as, and it's like challenging himself in all these ways to do these like really hard physical feats. And one of the things that he did was this fast for multiple days. I don't even know how long it was. I was like in and out of the room as my husband is watching this. And so this other parent was telling me that they had also also watched the show. And so we were kind of just talking about different things that had happened, different things that Chris Hemsworth had challenged himself to. And so I was like, yeah, he kind of lost me at like the detox thing or the cleanse or the, the fasting thing. Cause I was like, if you want to challenge yourself to all these things, fine, whatever. But now there's like this increasing level as he's doing all these things in the name of good health, by the way. And many uh-huh. of them, especially the fasting one were like, if you like fast, like once a year for X amount of days, you'll add 15 years to your life. And I was like, first of all, that's BS science. I don't believe it for a <laughs> yes. second. Right. My friend was like, yeah. So like this family that like can't afford to eat, do those kids live? 15 yes. Years? And I'm like, yes, yes exactly. I'm a like, thousand this is, percent. oh, so the, like cl- the classism of so many of the, ha- the words, but also the habits where it's like, Well, yeah, it must be nice to do your juice cleanse where like every bottle of juice and you drink six of these bottles in a day and every bottle is $12, like enjoy, (laughs) go enjoy your big bad self. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm so glad you used that one as an example, because the pushback that I get so much is surrounding Mm -hmm. fasting a lot of times where it's like, no, but you can't, you know, there's research out there to support, like there's no no research done in humans long-term to support because no institutional review board is going to approve starving people right, right. for any right. length of time. So we're talking about animal research, which is valuable, you know, mm-hmm. but we don't have those kind of results. And we also don't know long-term, like this mm-hmm. hasn't been studied long-term to see all that, but your example is a good one because it's like, to me, this there very much falls into that. And I might get this wrong of how it said, you know, what's something that when wealthy people do it, it's classy, but when poor people do it, it's trashy, that kind of thing. So like fasting suddenly is elevated for health and we're cleansing ourselves or it's poverty and I can't afford a meal or I'm, you know, like I can only eat one meal a day or I'm doing like, how is that metabolic well-being? It just, it seems so like I can choose not to eat, even though I have these resources to do it. That just feels 
gross. Like kids that subside survive on free school lunches as their Uh most, their main meal, if not only meal a day, they're definitely intermittent fasting. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that's exactly. exactly. In any other scenario, we would call that something else, but suddenly it's, yeah. It's yes. yeah. So I think that these are, and these are the things that when we step back at it from it, then we can see it in a really different way. But when you're like, so in it, and I think when I, when we were talking about what to limit ourselves to in this conversation <laughs> that we know we can make 15 hours. One of the things I brought up as a potential topic was the optimization, the incessant oh. optimization of health. And I think that because we're in a culture and especially if you were in a culture of privilege. And so like, I will fully admit like middle-class white woman in Seattle, Washington, like the whole foods <laughs> Mecca <laughs> that if you're in this certain sliver of culture and society, it's not even a sliver, but slice of pie in culture and society, you are so entrenched in health culture in air quotes that you can't see out of it to recognize mm-hmm. how elitist it can be. And also the harm in buying into all of it. Mm-hmm. And if you come up against arguments that are like, of course you want to do the healthy thing. And of course you want to make healthy choices. And why wouldn't you make healthy choices? But there's this like really fine line between doing something for your health and doing something because it's what has been fed to you as part of diet culture and part of patriarchal society. And I would love to know, like, how do you toe that line to be like, yeah, I should eat some broccoli, but like, maybe I don't need to do like a broccoli cleanse. (laughs) Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it does sound really well, bad. Well, I love the word. I want to just because of the words matter part of this. I want to I want to mm-hmm. hone in on the word optimize, even just that language, which I'm not, I mean, that is the language that gets used all the time. But it's like, oof, like that's a word. You know, like what do we mean when we say to optimize? It's to perfect something. Yeah. It's to make it more, it's a, to be as efficient as possible. Like we're going to optimize, I don't know, the speed of our computers or something, you know? So there's this level connected to perfectionism in some ways, which as you're talking about patriarchy, you know, and I don't, in the irony of two white women talking here, but, you know, perfectionism and and its characteristic roots within white supremacy being an issue. So there's that level of we're trying to be so perfect and so efficient and all of this language that really, in my mind, really almost turns us into machines instead of bodies. And we use language like that. We're going to optimize food as fuel. You're going to see your doctor, you're going in for a tune-up. You know, you use that language. I'm going to, now we have all this computer language. I'm going to hack. I got a biohack. Mm-hmm. Like you can't hack your health. Mm-hmm. And why would you want to? Right. Like, why would you want right. to? So there's that kind of thing. And I just think this, our roots just culturally, you know, from like this puritanical standpoint, there's a moral obligation that you need to be doing these things. You need to be constantly pursuing this type of health. And I do think there's a connection just from the idea of being at your quote best, whatever that is in a body that's like ready to go to battle. You know, we're going to defend whatever it is and we're going to be at our absolute best. And there's a moral obligation to do that. But then there is that elitism part that's connected to this mortality piece, which I find really interesting, you know, that we're optimizing health because we want to live long but we also don't want to look like we're aging, right? So I don't want to look like I'm aging, but also let me live forever and do Mm, these things. And it's an interesting balance, I think, with like the mortality piece of optimizing health that we're really trying to stave off death in certain ways. But 
there's some place like where reaching an older age becomes impressive. And I don't know what that age is, but you know, at the time we're recording this, you know, my father's going to turn 91, God willing, next week. Amazing. So when I tell people that, they say yes. that. <laughs> That's amazing, right? But what got him to be 91 years old? Like intermittent fasting? I was just going to say he fasted a lot, right? Kale? <laughs> like, no, this man grew, he was born in the Depression. You know, they, I, it's funny, my dad's like working on a book right now and like all the stories of how poor they were and moving around and not getting meals and how they did things through life. Like this was someone who got by, you know, in younger days. And then we lived a very meat and potatoes life, you know, in Pennsylvania and didn't have all the variety of vegetables and all these things that he was an active person, but also is going to be 91 years old. Like, did he hack his health? I don't know. And like, that's an N of one, but there is this aspirational part of this that also has a moral obligation. So I don't know, to get to your question of like, what's that fine line? Oof. I think there's two parts of that. There's, you know, for ourselves and then there's for others. On the others part of it, it's, we're not making assumptions about anybody's health or anything for that matter, you know, based on their body that we make assumptions that this person is quote unquote healthy or unhealthy or how they eat or how they move or how they don't eat or how they don't move or those kind of things. But then that also gets to be problematic because when we say, you know, there's often like, well, you can't judge somebody based on the size of their body, but then it's also there are how healthy someone is. It also puts health up on the pedestal. Mm -hmm. Like, right. you know, while this person, you know, and I'm using this word intentionally, you know, this, well, you know, a fat person can also be healthy. You know, they can also be active. They can run those things. Well, of course they can. Yeah. And it's also okay that that person is worthy of value and, you know, has value and is worthy and gets respect if they're not doing all of those things exactly. or if someone isn't healthy. So health right. becomes the pedestal and yes. it's okay if you are a larger bodied or a fat person, as long as you're pursuing health, like good for you, yes. you know, as that's long as you're doing the, the yes. thing, that you're, you know, the thing. You're, a, you're a good fat person to do that. Versus you don't have to, there's no moral obligation like to this constantly pursuing that. And so that becomes, I don't know, a, a challenge. But for ourselves, you know, it also is thinking about intention. You know, why am I making these particular types of choices? Because, you know, is it helping me feel good during the day? Is it adding to my, you know, mental health and my stress relief? Is it helping me to you know, say sustain for a long period of time because I have this busy work day or I'm really active with my kids and I want to choose this particular type of food because that's going to help with that. Mm -hmm. And even though broccoli might not be my favorite, I know that those nutrients are going to serve me well in the long term. So, you know, what's the difference to that versus, yeah, I have to have this particular type of food because it's going to cure some ailment that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> those kinds of things. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yeah. I want to touch back on, and I'm trying to remember the word that you used. And now I, the word that's coming to mind is robot. And I don't think you actually use the machine. word robot. Oh, machine. machine. Thank you. Yes. yes. When we talk about perfectionism and we talk about women, I think more specifically and food, when you use the word machine, I was imagining myself in college and through my twenties and with these very robotic systems in place around like, because it kept everything very perfect and controlled. And it was about like getting up and doing certain things and having workouts look at like certain things at certain times with certain metrics and having food look like certain things at certain times with certain metrics and all these kind of rules. And all of this came at the exclusion of like joy, pleasure, community around food, like all those kinds of things that from a cultural standpoint, there's a ton of culture around joy and pleasure with food. But if you are like in the trenches of diet culture, you can't appreciate any of that. And you typically opt out of it. And so when we have all of these women who are moving through their very robotic lives, they're missing out, moving through their very robotic machine lives, Mm -hmm. managing food and health in air quotes, it's at the expense of the culture, the cultural experience of food. Can you talk a little bit about how women can reframe their relationship with food if they're in that? Like, and I think this, I'm curious if you would agree. I think that those of us that were raised by parents who were really entrenched in diet culture carry a lot of this with us, even though we like know better, but we kind of don't know how to do better. Like I still do weird things with food, even though I know better. I know I still do very weird things with this food. Yeah, no, and it makes, and I like how you asked that because if you had that model, you know, of course it was normal, well, normal for so for a longer time than probably your realization of like, huh, maybe that's a little different that I do things this way or I think about food right. in this particular um, type of way. I think one of the big things that can be really helpful just to stick with the robot kind of machine metaphor is, you know, there's no right way to nourish yourself. 
And that's really challenging to sit with. That's really hard if you're like a type A control, but like where you want, like you want a rubric. And yes. Like, no, no, but there's not one. Right. Uh, and that's just going to make me mad now. <laughs> well, and, and let me uh, say that I can just clarify that. I guess there is a right way, but only you can decide what that yeah, yeah. is. And like the right way can look like a million different things. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's so many things that we outsource, you know, to different areas and having someone tell you how you should nourish yourself and what that should look like. How could anyone possibly know that? I mean, you can provide, you know, and as I'm working with clients, you know, you can get feedback of like, here's what a typical day looks like. Okay here are gaps. And this is probably why you're finding yourself eating, you know, standing in front of the fridge at nine o'clock at night. Here's a way to maybe switch that around if that's something you want to stop doing, right? We could talk about it from that way of what that could look like in terms of habits, but in terms of like these very rigid, you know, you need to eat this meal at this time and then work out this much time immediately within a 30 minute window. And then you have to do this other thing. And it's like, whose life is this? Who is living these lives? Well, lots of people are, yeah. right? Yes. But they do it to the extent that they can and mm-hmm. find that it's not sustainable mm-hmm. to be so structured over time, you know, and then you feel like a failure when you can't do it 100%, even though there might be some decent things that you pulled from that, you know, that that could be helpful, but it isn't necessarily like, wow, if I didn't eat this many green vegetables today, oof you know, I was bad or I did this, like days look different. And we see this Mm. related to like calorie targets that someone should be having, most of which are appropriate for like a four-year-old child and not a grown woman. But how does, how does a plan or a book or a website or an influencer know your day-to-day differences within your own body? This is a day of rest where I may not need as much. And this is a day where we're hiking in the mountains and I'm going to need more of it. Like, there's so much flexibility on how you're feeling, what your tastes are going to be, the cultural aspect of that, you know, what you're doing, that it does become really regimented. And so I think a part of that too, is really thinking about nourishing ourselves from a place of self-care, which is a word I know gets thrown around a lot, but I use it there instead of self-control. There's so much language about willpower, discipline, all these things that again, line up in the rule following nature that many of us find ourselves in as products of our dieting culture of how could that look different if I wasn't following a rule or I wasn't controlling everything about myself and actually turned inward and looked at like, huh, am I hungry? How hungry am I? What might I be hungry for? And when I work with clients, those seem like really easy questions, but they're mind blowing because it's like, I don't even know what hunger looks like unless I'm like hangry and ready to like eat whatever. Other than that, I don't know what my hunger signals are because I, you know, I fake them out with rice cakes. And you've overridden them for decades. And and air foods and like all these things to try to keep yourself full and it's fake full. So to even recognize that or to even, you know, I talked to someone once and I said, just as a fun question, like, what's your favorite food? And I thought she was going to cry. She's Mm. like, I don't know. Like, I actually don't know. And so even knowing like, what are the things that you like? So sometimes I'll work with folks and like go around this food that you find really problematic that you can't, you know, quote unquote, control yourself around. And when you actually work through the process of what that would look like to give yourself permission, many times that person doesn't even like that food anyway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You actually look at it and take the time to taste it. 
and yeah. really spend time with it's like, I don't even like this, you know? So yeah. what would that, if I'm really choosing things that are serving me and it does often bring up other things to your point about these robotic lives, mm-hmm. you know, if you pause and think, okay, how am I going to nourish myself? What's, you actually have to pause to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And how yeah. many of our lives have that place where you can just pause and think about your own needs Yeah, and what works for you and like, oh, and it's okay to answer that call, what that's going to be like, it's okay to do that. And for women, that's really challenging when there's so many other folks, you know, or people or responsibilities that are pulling us in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely challenging. I worked with a client who had been a client of mine in the fitness industry and then became a life coaching client of mine a few years later. And she was going through this transition of her kids had moved out of the house. Her husband was like doing a lot of travel for work and stuff. And for the first time in 22 years, she was, didn't have anyone to make dinner for and doing like life coaching stuff around her work and whatever. But one of the things where she was really stuck was she's like, I'm recognizing that I don't have preferences because I have not done anything just for me in 20 some years. And so she's like, I need to paint my son's bedrooms because they've moved out, but I don't know what color I like. And now every night I'm like forced or not every night, but many nights I'm forced to ma- I'm making dinner for myself. And I don't know what foods I like. Cause all I've done is make food based on other people's preferences for all these years. And she was so overwhelmed with like, how did I get here to like, not know what color I like and to not yeah. know what food I like. And yeah. I had a similar realization in a conversation with my son a little while ago, a couple of years ago, we were talking about favorite foods and at the time he was like eight or something. And of course, you know, any eight-year-old is going to have their favorite foods, which is in his case, like chicken nuggets and pizza. <laughs> and he's like, well, what are your favorite? What's your favorite food? And I had to stop and think because I have not, I'm like, oh, am I supposed to think of like the thing that I actually eat? That's my favorite. Or like, if there were no rules, ah. would my favorite food be like, and I'm like, oh my God, like, how am I still a- like, I know but, better than to think this way. No, it's it's interesting that that's a great example. One of the things mm. I do with students in the classroom in those painful icebreakers on the first day of class of like, you know, what's your name and what's your name? Yeah. <laughs> things we say. It, it feels like a natural extension to ask a group of nutrition students, what's your favorite food? But I have learned not to do that for those reasons. Yeah. Because it's like, it's like there's a question. It is, there's an obligation to think like, she knows I, I should say this right. versus kale, what, obviously kale, <laughs> right? I, I should say this versus what it might be. And then there's that feeling. So what I've done instead, which has been very fun is to ask, what is the food that you hate the most uh, like deal breaker? hate. and what it opens up is a food that I hate might be your favorite food. Yeah. And so it brings a different conversation of like, wow, we're all really different in the types of things that we like and we don't like, and that's okay. Yeah. I learned that when I have kind of thought it through, I was like, I think it might be pizza, but as someone who didn't eat pizza for like a solid 15 years of her life back in however many years ago, that was a real hard answer to come to. And now we have pizza like once a week, pretty regularly. And it's like no big deal. And I love it. But I was like, it should either be something fancier than that or more refined or more healthy or, and I'm like, no, I think it's pizza or my mom's lasagna. (laughs) Yeah, there's categories too. Like I have a dessert category and I have for me, me, in case you're interested, it's a cheeseburger. Mm. I love, and it has a good, like I love a good 
a yeah. good cheeseburger, fries, yeah. whatever, but the good, like at a restaurant or on the grill, you know, that kind of like, I do love a good cheeseburger. Yeah. 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 So interesting. There's so many things to unlearn, unpack, work through. I know we're already getting close on time and I want to keep talking for so much longer. <laughs> is there anything that you want to, before we wrap, is there anything that you want to leave us with around anything that you want to help unpack a little bit more or a tip or anything that you want to leave folks with before we go on our merry way? Yeah, I think I'll I'll end with two because they're related. One of the things that comes up a lot for me working with folks surrounding the area of like intuitive eating, which is where I do a lot of work recognizing as well that there is certainly privilege involved in folks being able to do that kind of work, you know, knowing that you have access to food and you can actually make those types of choices. If you are struggling to obtain food, obviously you're eating food and not worried about, you know, the intuitive part of that. But oftentimes I think there's misconceptions about that type of eating. And it's like everything else has gotten into a diet type of plan where the idea is there's like no consideration towards nutrition and health. Mm. It's just eat whatever you want, (laughs) you know, and it's fine. And there's parts to that. But it is also honoring your needs and some of the things we talked about and like looking at your hunger and your fullness and what do I actually want and what's satisfying to me and unpacking a lot of these food rules and diet culture types of things. And just as I guess, as an ending note, one of the things I think that's important for me to think about for myself and for, you know, those folks who are listening to is that your body is really on your side. You know, your body is doing things for you. It is doing its very best to take care of you, even though you're not sleeping enough and you're not, you're giving it caffeine to keep it going. And, you know, you're working out on an injury or you're not nourishing it, you know, sufficiently through calorie restriction or fasting, like all these things we do and our bodies are still there for us, you know, doing the things to keep us surviving. Um, and that might look like weight fluctuations and it might look like, you know, getting us sick so that we finally take a rest, those kind of things, but it really is on our side. And there's so many times where, you know, we look in the mirror, we have these judgments and things that we say about ourselves and the way that we look and the way that we move. And it's really incredible, all of the things that our bodies put up with us, you know, Mm -hmm. in spite of what we do to them. And so when we kind of reframe and look at that and say, wow you know, all the things you're doing for me, what are some of the things that I can start to do to better take care of? I love that. I love one of the things we talk about constantly around on the Shameless Mom Academy is just check listening inward and listening to your intuition yes. and learning to listen to your intuition because you have had, you have overridden it so many times in your life because of hashtag the patriarchy. And also mm-hmm. motherhood makes you override your intuition sure. where you're like, I'm really tired and hungry and I have to pee, but also I have to take care of this child. So I'm not going to have time to feed myself, shower myself, rest myself or pee for like three to six hours. <laughs> yeah. And for certain motherhood and business owners as well, the whole yeah, hustle entrepreneur. culture. Yeah. 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 And hustle culture, all those. Yeah. So with that said, that learning to listen inward and listen to, okay, what does hunger feel like for me? What is satisfying for me? What brings me joy? What do I like? What do I not like? Like all that and that checking. And I think is really, really important and can be a huge gift to ourselves if we choose to take it. And I think then we learn a lot. Like it's really, really eye-opening when we start to put together some pieces to that puzzle. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Amy. Oh, I want to keep talking about so many more things. I have to go pick up Vinny from school. Otherwise I would just keep you here for seven more days. So- and I would stay <laughs> because I've enjoyed talking to you as well. 
Tell me how you are currently showing up shamelessly before we let go here. I love this question. And knowing it was coming, I was thinking about it. You know, I think one of the ways I really want to be showing up shamelessly is to continue to to educate about food and bodies in ways that I know are going to receive pushback. And I know Mm. that folks aren't ready to receive and being okay with that pushback and doing it, quite frankly, in a body that may not look like what a dietitian is quote unquote supposed to look like and knowing how that's going to add to the pushback and doing it anyway. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for all of that. When I was in the fitness industry, one of the business coaches I worked with routinely intentionally would put up this post on Facebook that said, um, true or false. What do you all think a personal trainer should have a body that looks a certain way. And like, as a metric of like a personal trainer, basically should be like their own walking testimonial. Yeah. And it made my skin crawl to no end every single time. And it was so interesting to see the demographics of respond, like who said what. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was. So I learned with that, that to step outside the mold and be like, Hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to pursue this profession and not have six pack abs in my case, or, you know, as a nutritionist, I'm going to pursue this profession and not be a size two or whatever. Like there's a lot that comes with that. And also it's really, really important that there's people out there doing that work because it invites so many people in who would not otherwise walk into that work. A thousand percent. Yes. Your body is not your business card for sure. Exactly. And exactly. And you need that representation in all of these different areas of all types of bodies for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for being here and for the work that you're doing. Tell people where they can find you, connect with you and get all your good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Spending most of my time on Instagram at Dr. Amy Porto and it's doctor with the period. And then my name, Amy P-O-8, yeah, A-M-Y-P-O-R-T-O. And I spend a lot of time on there. I chat with folks in the DMs. That's how you and I got to know each other. (laughs) Case in point. (laughs) Right. And also on my website, which is amyporto.com. Nice. And I have to vouch for your Instagram stories. They are always fabulous. Everyone needs to just go watch your stories every day. I will link up everything in the show notes. So people go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Dr. Amy Porto. You can click right through to website, Instagram, Facebook, and everything else. Amy, thank you for being here. You have to come back. We need more conversations. If you ever have anything you want to promote, you're always more than welcome here. And I'll, I'll hunt you down for another conversation at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> I would love to come back because I feel like we have lots of things to discuss. Yes. Sure. Thanks so much for having yes. me. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review. That will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. 
Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.